Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The art of charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to the art of charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and exceptional individuals to teach you how to be a top performer in life, love, and at work, and in this case, in the sack and in your relationship. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a curriculum. We may not have all the answers, but we definitely have all the questions. Make sure to stay up to date with AOC and get some great stuff that we don't or can't share on the show by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. There we've got our fundamentals toolkit that covers topics like body language, nonverbal communication, dating, attraction, persuasion, business networking, public speaking, negotiation, and a whole lot more. And we've got our live programs running every week here in L.A. In fact, we've got people from all over the world, which shows that no matter where you are, you can make it here if you're committed to learning and growing. We're sold out a few months in advance, so if you're thinking about it, get in touch ASAP by phone or email me, jordan at theartofcharm.com. Get some info from us now so you can plan ahead. Looking forward to meeting you here. Here at AOC. Today we're talking with Dr. Chris Donahue, certified sex therapist and sexologist. We're going to talk about the difference between those two a little bit later on during the show. This episode is not safe for work. A few times we get a bit detailed about these topics, namely sex and masturbation. So if you're not cool with that and you're not cool with TMI, then move along to another episode. We got plenty. Cultures that embrace sexuality have lower rates of teen pregnancy and STDs. We're also going to talk about why cultures that embrace porn have lower rates of sex crimes and how there's no right way to have an erection. All this and a few more sordid topics on this episode of AOC. Tell us what you do in one sentence, because I want to deconstruct this, because we don't hear this a lot. Yeah, okay. So I guess the one sentence is that I'm a sexologist and a sex therapist. What is a sexologist versus a sex therapist? Yeah, it's a good question. So a sexologist is someone who has uh, pretty much dedicated their entire career to focusing on the science of sex, the you know cultural anthropology of sex, the sociality of sex. It's someone who studies sex. Is that a subdivision of anthropology or something? No, it's its own. It's its own uh, domain and concentration. And there's a few schools that you can study that at. I mean, you know, it's not a very popular thing to study. <laughs> I was going to say an enrollment is through the roof. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people don't tell their parents, "I want you to send me to college. I want to study sex. Please pay for this." Yeah, so they're like, "I'm studying." I'm surprised they don't make it a subset of anthropology, just so people are like, "I'm studying anthropology, mom. It's all good." <laughs> yeah, that would be a good defense. No, you have to own it if you're going to do this, we make you own it. Right. You have like t-shirts and things that say sexology department. They, well, close. There, there's a lot of t-shirts out there. Uh, one of the big popular ones is called sex geeks. And so there'll be people that have shirts that say I'm a sex geek. <laughs> right. Wow. And, and in order to do that, you have to have a button down shirt with tattoo sleeves or something also uniquely that marks you as a cool academic, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I started my life as a radical 
uh, getting tattooed at like 15 and 16, you know, definitely in the uh, New York City rock and roll scene. And uh, that's kind of what's driven my work. My work has an activist component. I've always been an ass kicker. So what kind of activism are we talking about? Sexology activism. (laughs) This is a great combination. It is. It is. It's a dangerous combination. So I guess my work has evolved to a place where I am always working to really normalize sex and make it something that we're more comfortable talking about and thinking about and encountering in different ways and um, just moving people towards that because it's one of those things where you're going to lower your voice at Whole Foods when talking about it. We edit it out of television. We're just not comfortable with it. That's because this is America. They don't edit it out of any other nation's tell. Well, in Europe, they don't do it. I shouldn't say any other nation. But uh, shit, Saudi Arabia doesn't even have movie theaters, from what I understand. <laughs> yeah, literally. I mean, we're doing a little better in some areas. For yeah. Sure. But that, I think that's one of the last uh, humps we have to get over. And I think once we get there, we'll be in a much peaceful, a much more peaceful place for sure. You know, it's funny that this kind of creeps up because I, I was serious. Saudi Arabia apparently doesn't have movie theaters or at least like even in big cities, no one does it. And I asked one of my friends, she's Saudi. She now lives in America. said, why don't you have movie theaters thinking it must be because they're so conservative and she goes, it's just not a popular thing to do. And I just can't believe that. It was so comical to me. I was thinking that's just delusional. Of course, it's because there's this massive conservative thing going on, and you know, going to see movies is not a—it's just not a thing that they do for probably that reason, and, which is an assumption on my part, to be fair. But we as Americans, we kind of assume, well, sex is a taboo thing, and it's private, and blah blah blah. But really, other countries—they—they they don't think about it that way at all. So we right. manufacture these constraints on ourselves, and then since just seen that our whole life, we kind of go, oh no, it's like that. Well, let's go even further. We're not not only are we scared of it and keep it quiet, but we see it as dangerous where other cultures understand that a natural stage of social development involves sex and they train their youth you know, around how to respect it, how to encounter it, uh, kind of like maybe wine in other countries where people drink at younger ages and, and they get comfortable with it. But in America, it's something to protect everyone from. Delay it as much as possible. Don't have it unless you have to. Um, we're always talking about the downsides. I mean, that's actually really kind of funny. I, when trying to get booked at different universities to speak, when they think I'm going to come in and talk about, you know, the dangers of porn and how to be careful around sex. They're on board. But when I tell them, no, I want to talk about the beauty of sex and the health of sex and why it's important to have it. No one's going to book you. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Things get dry. Right. Definitely. can see that. And, uh, I don't want to make it a history lesson. I assume that comes from sort of puritanical historical. Yes. Yada, yada. I remember when I was an exchange student in Germany, there were other people from other parts of the world, and there were these girls from Iceland and Sweden, and they were like, why are Americans so conservative about sex? And I was like, we're not. You know, I'm an American guy. I love having sex. Totally a virgin, right, at this point in time. <laughs> and 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 they're like, because when I was 13, me and my friends, we'd have parties, and our parents would, like, be upstairs, and we'd be downstairs, like, everybody's doing it. I'm like, 13. And I remember getting offended and just being like, oh, my God, that's terrible. And uh, that shows the programming because even at age 17, when you're do- you would cut off any part of your body except for one in order to have the opportunity to have sex. <laughs> yep. I'm still finding myself kind of being like, oh, man, that doesn't seem safe. Kids are doing this. And, and yet I would be surprised. I'm sure you've looked at this at some point. Maybe you don't remember. But I wonder what teen pregnancy rates and things are like that in countries where they're 
they do it so early that it's not special anymore. Oh yeah, it's far lower, and that's what's interesting is so in our you know sex phobic culture where we teach abstinence only sex education, we have higher rates of STDs, higher rates of unwanted and teen pregnancy. Cultures where they're allowed to see it on television, they're allowed to talk about it, they learn how to talk about it because they talk about it, and they're able to set boundaries and ask important questions, and they have lower rates of all of that. When I lived in Germany back in, this is 1997, 1998, something like that. I should probably look that up because I tell these stories a lot. I was staying over at my friend's house and there were girls there. It was like a party. And I had to call my host parents because I was staying with a host family over there. Who And I was basically like one of their kids for this year. And the like my host father answered. I was like, yeah, I'm going to stay over at my friend's house. And he's like, cool, where are you? And I'm like, uh, and I didn't want to lie and like ruin my relationship with these people. So I was like, uh, her name is Maria, but there's a lot of other people there and there's a lot of boys here and it's fine. And they're all staying. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Use a condom. See you tomorrow. And he hung up. And I thought I'm in so much trouble when I go home. First of all, I thought that was incredibly cool. But then I thought I'm dead when I get home. I mean, he's, he's trying to be cool now, but he's not, you know, this isn't going to be cool. And I show up and he was really like, there was no mention of it, but not in that awkward way. It just wasn't a thing. And then a couple weeks later, we're eating dinner as a family. We turn on the TV and like basically porn comes on. Not basically, porn comes on because we're eating a late dinner. And my host mother turns to my host father and goes, how come I never scream like that, Yorg? What's the problem? And I just turned beet red and had to like leave. <laughs> you know, it's like this kid <laughs> could not deal with it. And my, my little host brother who was 15 just starts laughing and is like, oh, yeah, they always do that stuff. Yeah, it's a little trick they like to play on us Americans. No, yeah, and that's the beauty of it is that they're not afraid to acknowledge that it exists and that it's going to happen. And that's seriously one of the problems. You know, another interesting topic is pornography. Um, the same thing applies. Cultures that are more comfortable and supportive of pornography have lower sex crimes as well. Countries that are anti-porn have higher sex crimes. And it's probably a similar correlation and causation where if you have outlets to sexuality and you understand how to speak and ask for what you want and you're allowed to have it, you're going to have a better relationship with it. That's interesting. Does that sort of parallel, and we're treading in dangerous waters here, but does that sort of parallel the legalization of drugs types of arguments and things like that? Yes. Yeah, for sure. For sure. You know, again, we live in a culture where drugs are legal were to become legal overnight, would we overnight learn how to engage it appropriately and use it in a healthy way? Probably not. It would take some time for us to re-socialize around it where other cultures, let's use the lazy example of Amsterdam, they've been from birth socialized around how to utilize and encounter and work with it. So yeah, similar argument, but we always have to remember where we're coming from. If you overnight shift something, we're going to have to scramble to learn how to, to deal with it. That's true. So that's the that's the holding a wolf by the ears argument, right? You can't just let go. Yeah, and I live in California, as do you. And in LA, there's you know marijuana dispensaries, and there's people. It's very easy to get a marijuana card and to be able to quote unquote in a decriminalized way use marijuana. And so you know, I, I watch people learn how to kind of integrate it into their life, and it's something that's doable if the culture can support it. You're one of the few people in the entire world certified as a sex therapist. There's a lot of sex experts, though, right? So what's the difference here? It seems obviously yeah, I'm certified. Hello. But what does that mean? I mean, it's massive. It's massive. It's a really important and good question. So the certification process implies that you are already licensed as a therapist. Um, that's the fundamental you know, starting point to get certified. And then it's multiple years of continuing education specialization, supervision, and clinically working with 
sex therapy cases. And so it's a true specialization. And, you know, the whole word sex expert, you can call yourself that. Anyone can call them. That's not a regulated term. I am. You can ask any woman I've ever, I'm far from an expert <laughs> on, the, on, this, on this subject. <laughs> There's a consensus that I am not a sex expert. Oh, you are not. I'm I am sorry. not. And you have some work to do. And so you would be a prime candidate to see someone like me. You would be the guy <laughs> that would call me and say, you know, I'm in a relationship. My girlfriend is not thinking that I'm that, uh, I'm that great sexually in terms of <laughs> helping me. Uh, that's good, though. There's a place where we can turn for help other than like Pornhub or whatever, which is obviously unhealthy. What is healthy sex, though? Because it seems like that's a wide, there's got to be a pretty broad definition of what that is. Yeah, yeah. And that comes up a lot. I, it's probably among the top three questions that I get asked. And, you know, it's a tough, frustrating answer that I give. It, it, it really depends. Um, psychology has a lot of really overarching, universal, solid definitions. And sometimes they'll say things like healthy sex only takes place in a relationship. And, and then that's not true. Um, healthy sex would really be sex that's consensual, that's always the number one foundation is, is it's consensual. Uh, number two is that you're informed. You understand what sex is going to mean, what's going to happen, and you're willing to deal with the consequences of that. I can see this, right? Because the within the relationship thing sounds like a moral kind of enforcement dealy. And you go, oh, that makes sense. And then they're kind of like, and also relationships only are these things. They're only exactly. heterosexual people who are married and committed to each other or something like that, right? Yeah, and it denies the, it denies the idea that two healthy adults um, can come together, decide very openly, consensually that we're going to have sex. We don't want it to mean anything more. Have a great night. Have, it have a lot of depth and intimacy and then part ways afterwards and never see each other again. That can occur and that can be healthy. Because it seems like that's the primary argument for what unhealthy sex would be. Oh, correct. Absolutely. And, 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 I, and I disagree with that because I would say unhealthy sex would be sex that wasn't consensual and sex that had a negative impact on you in some way. How can sex have a negative impact on people? And this is I, I'm not that stupid. I just want to illustrate these answers for people. No, that's that's brilliant. That came up this week in a, a sex therapy group I was running. So I run, you know, group therapy as well. And it's important to notice um, that it's a human being you're with. And sex is not as neutral as we want to think it is. And people will say, well, that was just a hookup. That's just a fling. It's not. Anytime you have sex, you're impacting the other person. And it sounds a lot like a lot of weight on it, but you're either healing them or you're further wounding them. You're either letting them know that there's healthy people in the world to engage, or you're reminding them that the world is a scary place and sex doesn't feel good and it's a negative, bad thing. And so I tell people, have that awareness that whenever you engage someone sexually, you are impacting them. It's called empathy. Ah, wouldn't that be true for kind of the way that we relate to a lot of other folks? It's just that this is a more physical way of I'd hope so, but I just don't think we walk around. You know, we live in a very uh, capital, capitalist, individualistic culture where it's all about me. What do I want? I have to put myself first. And that's the opposite of this, where I think the work is about being more empathetic and relational, meaning how is this impacting those around me? Huh. So we start to think about our relationships with other people and sex with other people using that. Can you teach us a model for you have a better model for dating and marriage in, in your book? Can you tell us about that? Yes. Yes. What the model for dating and marriage is, 
is not what we're doing right now. And it's not what you're probably reading in most of these, you know, sex and dating manuals. And it's not what most therapists are telling you. What most therapists and manuals and media, because media is a massive socializer for us, it's telling you that you need to put yourself first and you need to look out for yourself. That's awesome, but that's anti-relationship. Relationship is actually about a fusion and somewhat of a codependence with another person. And you actually want to think in opposite terms and you want to think, how is this impacting my partner and how is this impacting us? And we don't do that. What do we do instead? We're just thinking about self. So yeah. what do I want? I need self-esteem. And I try to tell people, no, it's relational esteem. And if you're going to be in a relationship, you can't say I, you have to think in terms of us and we. And that's what comes in my office in you know my couples and sex therapy clients is two people come in and they're only thinking about what they want and what they need. And there's no relationship. And I try to get them to a place where they're thinking, what does our relationship need? And what about us? What, you know, we, and kind of fuse them and push them together. So that's one issue that comes into your office. What kind of other issues do you see? What kind of other problems or, or issues do people slide in your office? Yes. Sexual dysfunctions, that would be among the top three. Um, in addition to this, you know, how do I maintain a relationship kind of thing. And it's a fascinating thing to look at because, you know, and weigh in on this, Jordan, around what you've heard all your life. Um, people will talk about erectile dysfunctions and, a lot of guys have anxiety, you know, will I last? How long will I last? Will I be able to get hard? Will I be able to stay hard? And it completely, completely changes what sex is even about. You know, why do we have sex? I mean, I'll ask you that. Why do you, why do you have sex? Uh, it's an urge and it's fun. And uh, yeah, the PC answer is to develop and further my intimate relationships. <laughs> yes, all of those reasons. And none of those inherently consistently need your penis to be hard at all times. And yet we've moved away from what you just said, which is a pleasure model, a connection-based model. We've moved away. Now we're just thinking about performance. And it's not about performance. Bad sex is sex where people are only worried about performance. Good sex is how did that feel? Did I feel connected? Did I get off? And so there's no right way for your penis to operate. And I, and I alleviate a lot of stress on guys when I tell them there's no such thing as coming too soon because there's no right amount of time to wait until you come. There's no healthy right amount of time that you're supposed to last. Everyone is different and that's okay. And so the work around that is getting guys confident that some people have erections that will last long, some people don't, and you have to work on accepting that versus getting stressed out and trying to change that. There's no right way. Ah, yeah. So they come to you to to learn about this or to, I mean, how do you? Well, they come in in a panic and they say, you know, my girlfriend shames me because she says I don't last long enough. Or, you know, when I meet a girl, I'm really turned on and I get really anxious and I can't get hard. And I say to them, you're not a dildo. It's a penis, not a dildo. A dildo will always be hard. If you want that, reach for that. But you're a human being. And, you know, we have this idea. Reach for the dildo. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but that's actually part of the solutions. I say, you know, if you come sooner than you want, you still have a tongue. You still have fingers. You have sex toys. Good lovers don't let sex stop. Good lovers know that sex is not just about penetration and a penis. That's a huge tip. And how do we educate? I mean, that sounds great, right? But how do we educate our partners on this if they're kind of not on board? Yeah, and most of them won't be. A lot of women will say, he must not be attracted to me because he can't keep an erection. And they personalize it. And then they throw that back on their partner and they get angry. And it creates 
really erosive, problematic, uh, dangerous relationship. So it's a couple's issue. You know, any issue that's sexually based, it's going to involve usually two people and it becomes a couple's issue. And that's kind of why I wrote the book. That's why I do the TV shows I do because I'm trying to get out there. And that's why this podcast is important because I want people to start having this conversation and re-educating each other. Because basically the solution is a massive cultural re-education around healthy sex. What about things like porn addiction? This is like a, this is a buzzword now, sex addiction, porn addiction. I'm reading Neil Strauss's new book, which is all about this subject without giving too much of it away. Yeah, I, I don't subscribe to any of it. You know, it's an interesting time where we're, we're labeling and pathologizing typical normal life experiences. And I have guys coming in and they've self-diagnosed or, you know, their wife or girlfriend has diagnosed them as a porn addict or a masturbation addict. And what's really funny is when I ask them to explain to me their masturbation habits or their porn use, they're really describing typical expected situations. Most guys masturbate anywhere from one to three times a day. If your girlfriend's telling you, what if you don't masturbate enough? Apparently, <laughs> like, like me there, you, there you go. Like and every guy listening. <laughs> that's a good response. But there will be wives that will say you masturbate every day. You're, you know, a masturbation act or a porn addict. And it's no, he's actually normal. That's typical. That's expected. That's a lot. It is. It will. It, it's this is the thing is the the beauty of sex. Uh, and therefore, you know, solo sex masturbation is that it's a tool and a resource that we have to self-soothe, to help get rid of stress. It's something to do with ourselves to reinforce, you know, self-esteem and pleasure. Um, and a lot of people utilize that. When when you have a rough day, what do you come home and do? Uh, I don't know. What do I do? <laughs> Push-ups. Do you put on a game? Do you put on television? Yeah, I've got different types of ways to blow off steam, I guess. Yeah, sometimes it's a video game day. That's pretty rare. Um, other times, I play with my cat, actually. Okay, okay. Pretty so relaxing. other people would come home and masturbate. Yeah. No, I definitely had those days. It's called college. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, and that's a time of, of you know, a lot, a lot more singledom or hookups, and so it, there's more of a place for it. But when you get into a long-term committed relationship, that's when people start to get bothered uh, because you have this partner that's more aware of that and they can shame that. But could you imagine, Jordan, if I said to you, I think you're a cat petting addict because every day when you come home from work and you're stressed, you pet your cat to feel better. That's as ridiculous as me saying you can't in that same moment be masturbating for five minutes as well. What's the distinction? Right. Yeah. Well, I think the difference is your partner thinks you should be recruiting me to help out with that. Which would be awesome if your partner lived with you, was there when you got home, and always interested in maybe daily sex. Right. That's usually not the case. Right. And I mean, just Jason says he drinks scotch uh, <laughs> when he runs to relax, and he says three times a day my damn arm would fall off, and as long and it should be fine as long as you're not masturbating your cat. So, Jason, if you're <laughs> not going to speak that. up, well said. If, if Jason's not going to speak up, I'm going to throw everything that's on the back channel out into the I show. Like, I like how Jason thinks. I think Jason should be in on this. Um, but it's an interesting thing to consider because it goes back to what we started talking about at the beginning of this, which was we're sex phobic. And so if you use sex for something, it's automatically perceived as risky, dangerous, or questionable. You can have scotch when you get home to unwind. You can pet your cat, play video game. But oh my gosh, if it's masturbation or porn, we're going to pull the fire alarm. Because sex is always suspect. Why? Because we have a sex-phobic culture. 
let me ask you this. Why on a Sunday can you zone out, be nonproductive, and watch a football game for four hours or you know, Real Housewives marathon for eight hours, but you can't masturbate for a couple hours? What's the difference? The difference is I can't masturbate for a couple hours no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just a stay. Yeah. Well, if you had, <laughs> that's practice. You need to practice. But you get point. It's just that we always think sex is some different case. We just can't quite assess it on the same level as everything else. Is porn addiction not a real thing then? Is that what you're saying? Well, that's what's interesting. So right now, the American Psychological Association does not recognize sex or porn addiction as a real thing. The American Psychiatric Association does not. The National Institute of Mental Health does not. The Diagnostic Manual has rejected it as as a diagnosis. It's not something that you can bill insurance for. So technically, within the field of psychology, it does not exist. So technically, any therapist diagnosing you with this is really um, being unethical and possibly illegal if they're billing insurance around it. Huh, because the conspiracy theorists, I'm trying to think for them right now, they're going to be like, that's because insurance companies want to limit what you can get treated for. That's true, too. That, that is real. That is real. I would say it's because, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of studies showing both sides. And, you know, I mean, the bigger comment on that is that, you know, the flaw in studies is that you can find a study to prove whatever position you want to take. But the newer studies coming out of places like UCLA are showing that what the problem really is, is not that you're looking at pornography too much. It's that you have shame around the fact that you're looking at pornography, that your culture, your religion, your wife, someone is making you feel bad about the pornography. And the shame is the actual problem, but you're somehow labeling it as an addiction. Right, because then instead of saying, this is something I'd like to do even though you don't like it, people can label you or you can label yourself as somebody who has a disease. Yeah, it's the uh, Tiger Woods scenario. That man was not a sex act. He was a jerk. He cheated on his wife. That's not an addiction. That's, that's something mean and not nice to do. But by calling himself a sex addict, he somewhat gets out of jail free. I can't help it. It's a disease. It's a disorder. I'm struggling. I'm going to go to treatment. How, there's nothing to treat. You need some integrity. You know, he had a lot of women throwing themselves at him. He's a, he's a celebrity. He had crappy boundaries. He needs better boundaries. He's not a sex addict. So yeah, it gives people a way to feel better about it. If you go to a quote-unquote sex addiction treatment center, they will tell you that sex outside of a committed relationship is addictive, which is funny because that makes, you know, 80% of the culture an addict because, you know, not everyone is married and we are all being sexual. Um, They also don't think that masturbation is a healthy form of self-soothing. Okay, problematic. This is all being diagnosed by people that haven't had sex in God knows how long. They're afraid of sex. They're not dating. So they don't remember what it's like to be single or struggling. Or th- So this is making sense to them. But if they were actually out there as a sexual person like I am, I'm single. I'm out there dating. I'm out there having sex. I'm reminded of what's normal because I'm living it. I'm struggling with it. And a lot of these people are so detached from the world. All right, back to Chris Donahue. Yeah, I think there's a lot of that. And also, it just it seems like maybe those forms of treatment were created back when you could never have acknowledged that some of this stuff was natural because everybody was so conservative and people in the profession were just not going to tolerate that because it would have been like endorsement or something. Oh, yeah. And God forbid we endorse sex as a solution for anything. And also, these people aren't trained. The people that started the sex addiction movement are not psychologists. 
Um, now there are psychologists and therapists in it, but the founders were not sexologists. They did not have advanced degrees in human sexuality. They were not certified sex therapists. And the people running these centers also are not. So they're people that aren't even trained in sex. So that's something that has to be questioned. And it was really interesting, full disclosure, and this is actually in the beginning of my book, my early clinical career was me getting trained in and working in the sex addiction world. My early career was me getting trained in and working in sex addiction. So I understand the inside of that. I was trained in all the big names in the field. And so I'm in a really privileged place to be able to call bullshit on all of it because what I got to learn is that the big leaders in the sex addiction field are all so sex phobic and they all have their own issues where sex created problems in their life and their response to it is to do sex addiction and to shame it and to continue to be afraid of it and to make people also that way. A few weeks ago, a few months ago, actually, on the show, we had my friend Chris, and he was a woman and transitioned into a man and did it very publicly, not like Bruce Jenner publicly, but he did it like in an office and, you know, all his friends and family were kind of on board with it, knew about it. So it, it really affected him and it created this big conversation here at Art of Charm in the fan mail inbox and things like that about the concept of gender norms and roles and going to law school at a liberal school like University of Michigan. There was a lot of there was a whole lot of discussion on those topics. And even one of my close friends at school that I worked with on a lot of projects was a woman who used to be a man and she was like 50 and had kids and an ex-wife. It was crazy. I mean, it was really, really interesting. And so it's clear that we have kind of a controversy with gender norms and roles and things like that. Can you touch on that a little bit? Oh yeah. I mean, <clears throat> that's a brilliant story and, and you're telling the stories of success around gender, but it does a lot of violence and does a lot of damage. There was a young teenager and he went into school, and this occurs sadly very often, and shot it up, right? Started firing, killed a lot of girls, killed a lot of boys. And the question was, he's mentally ill, he's mentally ill. Well, what I was trying to get the attention focused on was what, what creates such a social problematic tension, and it's gender. From birth, we are trained to believe that there's such a thing as this different opposite other gender, and we're separated. You know, everything we do as kids is boys over here, girls over there. We are forcing this idea of this other kind of person that you don't understand and is so different from you and they're the opposite, they're the opposite. And you never necessarily learn how to really then engage them. You all of a sudden hit puberty and you're struggling to figure out how do I make sense and approach and talk to this magical other that I've been told is an opposite when in reality, it's not. We've made it that way. And this poor kid had no self-esteem didn't know how to talk to girls, was raised to see them as scary and other and opposite, and got rejected by them because he didn't know how to talk to them. And it built such a depression that he went into school and killed a bunch of people. And I was saying yet again, this idea that there's separate genders and they're the opposite is ridiculous. It's so socially created. You know, if you say I'm a man, all of a sudden there's a list of expectations that we have on you that are completely made up. You're going to have to enlist in the army. So all of a sudden your life isn't that meaningful. If a ship is sinking, women and children first, that's an arbitrary designation. So if you have a penis, your life yet again doesn't mean as much as the other two do. And there's all these bizarre expectations. And I see it really creating problems in my office where, again, one of the biggest couples issues is I don't understand this other gender. And I try to explain to my clients, you're very similar. There's a lot of similarities and you've been told that there's a separation and distance and there isn't. So how do we fix that in a society that has the sex taboo that we have? Oh, we are already, though. Walmart 
they're no longer having their toy aisle separated by gender. It's now just toys. There's not girls aisle and boys aisle. It's just all blended, which is a brilliant move away from that where a toy is a toy. There's no such thing as a girl's toy or a boy's color. They're colors. They're toys. Pick whatever you want, play with it, have fun. I mean, that's a beautiful example of that. You know, when I was a kid, I used to like girls, a lot of different types of girls toys. And my parents didn't care. But people in the toy store would always make me feel weird about it. So eventually I started to like have, I would I would say, mom, can you go get this for me? And I can't remember what they were. They were like little people that folded up. They're not super girly. They just had a girly name, but they were cool. You know, they were like fun things. And but Jordan, uh, it's for girls. Right. And I, I found one on the playground and I kept it. And that's what got me into them in the first place. So I was like, oh, I want this. So I went to the store and the woman was like, these are for girls. How about some G.I. Joe? I mean, it wasn't that cliche, but it was something like that. Like, look, we have toy soldiers. And I was like, I already have a ton of those. You know, I want these things. And uh, it was really strange. So I remember one time I made up a weird story about wanting this. And I sort of tried to like trick my mom into buying it without me even though I tried to describe the exact thing that I wanted. Because you know, imagine hearing a kid talk about a toy and getting the right thing. It's impossible. Talk about finding a needle in a haystack. I've been to Toys R Us this week looking at Legos, and there's a million different options. You can't even choose when you're looking. And so eventually I sort of stopped liking that stuff, not because it was less appealing, but because it was actually a pain in the ass to get people to just freaking <laughs> sell me whatever it was and not give me so much crap for it. Yeah. They're weird. Right. And, and even now I'm like, I totally understand the appeal of boys toys. Legos were for boys back when I was a kid. Girls didn't even have them. Yeah. It's a bizarre designation that's forced on people. It's damaging. And you know, again, Going on dates and being a man or, or a woman, all of a sudden, there's a lot of expectations on you and a lot of pressure and you have to be a certain way. And it's just traumatic. And so there's a big movement coming and it's happening and there's a lot more being written on it called gender neutral parenting, which is parenting your child without a gender, meaning letting them just be whatever they want to watch, they can watch, whatever they want to wear, they can wear, whatever they want to play with, understanding that there's nothing mentally disordered in a child playing with something that's from a different gender because we make that up. I mean, here's another funny historical example. You know, if a boy is born, what, what color do we slap him into? Blue. Yeah. Well, back in the day, blue was for girls. It was seen as feminine and boys were put in pink because it was close to red and red was seen as royal and regal. And so- So we switched them? We did. Girls aren't drawn naturally towards pink. Like, my daughter is such a girl, she loves pink. No, we've socialized her to believe that because there was a time when she would have been wearing blue. It's arbitrary. Huh. That's interesting because there's a lot of people that think oh, yeah. that that's a natural It's not at all. Condition. Yeah, yeah. For, for sure, not at all. I mean, think about it. You walk down the aisle. If you have a little girl with you, you're walking down the little girl's toy aisle. She's only going to be able to reach for what she has in front of her. Um, so it's something that's forced upon people. And, you know, again, just like I said, the example is this idea that there's an opposite sex. There isn't. Um, and it really fouls up couples and it messes up sex. Huh. So can we go overboard with this, though? Because yes. it seems like there's a lot of people who write things like, we're not going to tell our our baby that it's a boy. We're going to let him <laughs> yes. find out. And I'm like, you can't not, it's raising something as non-gendered is fine. But if, if you can't, it's like, you can't withhold information that everyone else in society is going to have. That's just going to be weird. I think. Yes. I mean, cause it goes back to kind of 
changing how we look at sex or the legalization of drugs conversation, which is we live in the culture we live in. And certain changes, although healthy or important, still are going to be treated based on the culture we currently live in. So because we do like gender, if out of the blue, people are being raised without one, there's going to be some conflict, tension, or growing pains. I don't know how to frame it. It's not going to be a smooth, seamless thing. But I think it's moving in the right direction because as we talked about with your friend who is transsexual and Bruce Jenner, you don't know if you're raising a transsexual child. And if you are, and you're forcing them into a gender they're not comfortable with, you're doing psychological damage. Yikes. That's not something you want to do to your kid at yeah, all, it's, obviously. It's, it's also like if you're raising your kid who's a boy, uh, assuming they're heterosexual and always talking about dating girls, if it turns out they're not, you're doing psychological damage. And you're forcing them into the closet, which means at some point they have to struggle to come out of the closet to you. And all those things don't need to exist if we didn't make these assumptions. If we raised our kids and did sex education where we said, maybe you like boys, maybe you like girls, we'll find out someday. That would make this transition a lot smoother. Maybe you will continue to dress and live as a boy, maybe you won't. Both are options, both occur, also we'll have a smoother transition, but we don't do that. I can just see the uh, the awkward conversations I'm gonna have with my kids. Now listen, son or future daughter, not really sure yet. Now when you're dating, boys or girls, whichever you choose, be sure that you wear just whatever you want, it doesn't have to be blue or pink, and you can also- Jordan, please do that. I promise you, you will be saving your child so much struggle if they happen to not be heterosexual or you know aligned with the gender that that they've been you know raised with. I mean, I know it sounds funny, but we have to look to the younger generations to really understand what we're headed towards. And if you're looking at what's going on in terms of identity and gender and sex with the 12-year-olds and 14-year-olds and 16-year-olds, that's the direction we're moving. More kids are coming out as gay. More kids are coming out as trans because they're realizing that they can. There's a confidence in it. And they're realizing that's an option. And so we have to get comfortable and accommodate that. Before we close, you've got some pretty counterintuitive advice, or I shouldn't say counterintuitive, but maybe counter what everybody else is saying about dating <laughs> Controversial. And sex. Controversial, maybe, yes, that too. One of the bits of advice was have sex as soon as possible because of the importance of sexual compatibility. Can you discuss that a little bit? Because usually people say, well, you should wait because if you do it too early, you're doing yourself some damage or selling yourself short or not valuing yourself or... Oh, right. Or you're communicating that you're not really interested in the person. Yeah. And it's funny because again, I'm a sex and couples therapist. So I work primarily, exclusively, mostly with couples. And I'll tell you what happens often, and this is very sad, is people will assume if I'm attracted to you and we you know, hit it off psychologically, have great conversation, a lot of interests... Well, sex will just fall into place. Sex will just inherently be, you know, compatible and something that works. No, not at all. That is a lie. It is its own level of compatibility and intimacy. And it's not inherently there if you love someone. And couples will really invest in each other and build something together and maybe get married and maybe even, you know, purchase a house or move and have not really explored sexual compatibility. And then when they finally do and it's not there, it rips them apart. You can't be monogamously long-term happy with a partner that you're not sexually compatible with. It's something that you have to investigate. It's as important as all the other levels of compatibility. Thanks so much, Dr. Chris Donahue. Is there anything that we haven't asked you that you want to make sure you communicate to the AOC No, audience? no, I think that was pretty solid. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. We're going to link to your work in the show notes here, as well as your Twitter and your book. Thank you. Thank you.
Well, Jason, I learned a lot about sex and relationships and what's considered normal amounts of masturbation. Jeez, that's a... Or abnormal amounts of ma masturbation. Or abnormal amounts, yeah, exactly. Well, there's a lot here. Uh, definitely a little bit of TMI for those of you who now need a shower. I apologize. Show feedback and guest suggestions. The show's a fanarchy. It's run by you. We rely on you to help keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone who's a good fit for the show, let us know. Guests at theartofcharm.com. And if you enjoyed this, don't forget to thank Dr. Chris on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well as his book and other resources. And you can tap album art in most mobile podcast players to see the show notes right on your phone. I also post a ton of stuff on Twitter that never makes it to the show. Articles and other insights. I'm at The Art of Charm on Twitter. Bootcamp details at theartofcharm.com. And remember, we're sold out in advance. In fact, right now, we're sold out three to four months in advance. So if you're thinking about it, get in touch ASAP, get details, plan ahead. Review, subscribe in iTunes. We'll love you forever. Android and iPhone apps available for free. Just do your little searcheroo, and there it is. Special thanks to the Jasons for their help in production of the Art of Charm podcast. Go ahead, tell your friends. The greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. Now have a great week and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com. 